Genesis chapter number 6. I want to begin reading in verse number 14, if we may. Verse number 14, I'll read to the end of the chapter. Now, I, I do have, and I w- I'm not going to read all of this tonight, um, but uh, I, I'm going to be making reference to both chapters 7 and 8. And so I'd encourage you, if you've not read those two chapters in advance, I send out our weekly email and uh, shared about this message tonight and, and the passage of Scripture. I would encourage you tonight, sometime tomorrow this week, go ahead and read that, and I think it will help you. But I'm at least going to go ahead and, and uh, read chapter 6, verses 14 through 22. So let's look here. Genesis 6, verse 14. The Bible says, Make thee an ark. He's talking to Noah here, God speaking to Noah. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. This is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. The door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. Behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind. Two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. And I like this verse that wraps up chapter 6. Thus did Noah. If God asked you to do something, could it be said of you that way? If God asked Scott Anderley to do a specific task, would God be able to say, thus did Scott? Or thus did Penny? Or thus did Tracy? I think those three words are very significant. That's not the message tonight. That's actually a little extra. It's a bonus tonight. But honestly, thus did Noah. God's calling every one of us to do something for him. And it's important that we follow him. So Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so did he. Wow, what a great wrap-up of that chapter. Let's go ahead and pray together. Father, thank you for the blessing of being able to come together and use us, Lord, in this time. Help me as I prepare and present uh, this this word tonight and uh, guide me and uh, help us to understand, really, this whole aspect of the flood the judgment that was upon these men and women at this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's very interesting, these couple of chapters, I've thought a lot about uh, the the ark creation that is up in Kentucky. How many of you have been up to the ark creation? If you raise your hand. All right. Pretty powerful is what I understand. I've been to the Creation Museum, 
And they were in the process of building the ark, uh, the, uh, the ark and uh, we've never gotten there. And so sometime here in the near future, I'm hoping that uh, our family might be able to get up there at a specific time. But I thought a lot about the ark, and uh, there's a lot of things you can look at, the answers in Genesis or maybe some of the other Institute of Creation research. There's a lot of great, uh, good conservative websites that are out there in regards to the flood and the ark and Noah and all of that. But leading up to this time, it's been a while since we've been in the study. What we're doing is we're going through Genesis 1 through 11. And we're basically pointing out a couple of things. Number one, we're pointing out that what we have listed in Genesis 1 through 11 is not allegorical. In other words, everything in Genesis 1 through 11 is literal. These are things that happened. Adam and Eve were real people. The flood was a real worldwide event. On and on through all of this. Back a number of years ago, the 40s, 50s, there was a lot of seminaries that began teaching to the Bible students that were going to be the pastors. They began teaching that Genesis 1 through 11 didn't need to be taken literal. In other words, that it was allegorical and you could just kind of read into anything that you wanted to read into it. And I want to tell you something. If you become a little spooky about Genesis 1 through 11, then it calls into question the rest of the Bible. And that brings me to my second point about these chapters and why I'm preaching through this is because in Genesis 1 through 11, if you want to know and how to interpret what is going on in this world today, go back to these 11 chapters. If you want to get a little answer, you're confused about, well, why is all this talk about gender? And are there more than two genders? Are there, is, is, there, is there something to be said about the flood? Was, was it really worldwide? I'm going to just tell you, come back to Genesis 1 through 11 and you'll receive the answers there. And powerful, powerful chapters that we need in this day. So I was over a year ago, I was moved really to preach through this on Sunday night because I thought it would be a great help. But we've gone through creation. We've gone through the advancement of civilization. We've looked at Cain and Abel. uh, We've looked at the sin of Adam and Eve. We've seen a lot of different things. And now we've come to a place where the last sermon that we had, God looked out at the earth and saw that the imagination of people's hearts was only evil continually. In other words, this society that had blossomed into a tremendous society, a a great population, had now become so wicked that God had to do something with the society. And I noted in the last sermon, and I want to springboard off of this, because when we talk about the flood and God's judgment, we think to ourselves, oh, God is this God that just quick to judge, and He just gets mad really easy, and boy, He just wipes all these people off. I want to tell you something. God was patient for a long time. And I want to remind you that God is patient in your life. And God is patient wants you to be patient with other people and show mercy when it'd be very easy to kind of come down with the axe. But God, through these years, had been very patient. But finally, there was a line that was crossed, and God said, it's now time to judge. You say, preacher, where is that line? I honestly and I personally don't know. 
I've talked to many people who have really run from God, who have really rebelled against God, and I've talked to them about that line, that God's going to come and judge you for what you're doing, and they'll want me to answer them, well, where is that line? When is it that God will judge me? And I said, don't test God. Your best bet today is to get right with God. If you're in a position where you're running from God, your best bet is to turn around and go to God. If you're rebelling against Him, it'd be best for you to lay down all your sins, confess them before God and say, God, I need you. Because I'm here to tell you, and I think you'd agree with me, the best life is the one that serves Jesus Christ. Get out into the world and seek alcohol as your friend. Seek drugs as your friend. Seek immorality as your partner. And I'm going to just tell you something. You will find yourself sold short. But when you take Jesus and you follow Him, it's a great life. I'm just telling you, I'm loving life. Am I perfect? No. But I'm loving life. And if you're here today and you're with God and you're doing the best you can to follow God, then you have to agree with me with a hearty amen. That is the best life. Could we say an amen there? All right. That was pretty good. All right. So let's talk now about this, these chapters here, chapter six going on through chapter seven and eight. And I want to give a few specific things. But the the question of the, the, that I give in the title, I'm going to kind of talk a little bit through it, and then I'm going to summarize at the very end. But here's the title, Does God Really Judge Sin? Now, if you've been saved for a long time and you understand the story, you say, well, yes, of course He does. But let's kind of, we'll come through and we'll wrap it up at the end, and we're going to take the look at the flood. So let's take the first point here and talk about these chapters here. First of all, the specifics of the flood. Let's talk about some specifics. How about this question about the flood or about the ark? How in the world could Noah build such an ark? I mean, honestly, it wasn't until the 1800s. In fact, I want to say it was 1865 that we didn't have a ship that was the size, really, of what the ark was built as its size. If you take a conservative estimate, because the Bible talks about in terms of a cubit, what is a cubit? Conservatively speaking, we might say one cubit represents 17 and a half inches. If that is the case, then according to the dimensions given in the Bible, chapter 6, verse 15, here's what we note about the ark. It was 438 feet long, 73 feet wide, and 44 feet high. It had a volume inside of 1,400,000 cubic feet. Now you say, what's all that? Well, here's what it's equal to. About 522 railroad stock cars fit right in that particular place. Now, the question, how in the world could Noah build such an ark? Well, let's be reminded about something that we've had with the messages leading up to this. We've come to this place now of Noah when he was called. We have now had 1,655 years of civilization. 
In that 1,655 years, we have had a civilization that has not only grown exponentially in its population, but it also has become very technologically advanced. Just go back to chapter 4 when we saw the one particular son that became a a, a, a great dealer when it came to making things with brass and iron. Now you say, what type of things did this man make and what type of business did he have? The Bible doesn't tell us that. But I would have to say that when Noah came to build the ark, I bet you he had all sorts of tools available to him. I'll bet you he had all sorts of things that could be used to really put that ark together. And so Noah building the ark, things were very developed at that time. You say, well, how do you know they were very developed? Well, let's just think about something for just a moment. When the flood took place universally, what did it do to everything on that earth? Now, we know all flesh died, and I'm going to point that out in just a moment. But it basically wiped out everything that mankind had known up to that point. I mean, any plans that people made of how to make a particular thing wiped out. Any particular drawings, any particular uh, things that were uh, uh, created here, all of those things were wiped out in the flood. And so civilization had to start over again. But when you read in the chapters, and we'll get to it in a few sermons, we come to chapter number 9 or 11. I can't remember which one it is right now. But we come to those one of those chapters where it's just a few hundred years after the flood. And what do they build up unto God here? Now, it's a rebellious act, but they build a tower. Well, again, now civilization is growing and civilization begins to get all their tools together. And they're building an edifice. That is a tremendous thing. Though the Bible doesn't talk about it, if we went a few hundred years later than even the Tower of Babel, guess what is built that we know of historically? The Great Pyramid in Egypt is built. People today still for hundreds of years have marveled at the engineering and how this thing has been built. So in just a short time, all of a sudden, great things are accomplished How is it that we all of a sudden start arguing about Noah with 655 years of civilization and technological advancement, how he could build an ark? I want to tell you something. God helped him and used him in a mighty way. Now, people have often wondered, well, it doesn't say that Noah did it all by himself. I mean, Noah had any help. The Bible doesn't even allude to that at all. Now, I'm quite sure that Noah and his three sons worked on the ark. But I don't even think that it was limited to just Noah and his three sons. I I would even venture to say that Noah probably hired some laborers to help build the ark. Now, again, the Bible doesn't say. I'm just uh, putting out some conjecture there. But uh, I want to just tell you here today that it was possible and Noah did. I believe the Bible that Noah was commanded to build an ark and Noah did build an ark. And it saved all those who wanted to be saved. Let's take another specific here about this particular story of the flood, and that is, was the flood universal? Let's think about this for just a moment. Was the flood universal? What I mean by this is, did this flood cover the whole earth, or, as some critics like to say, and I hope you realize that in our world today, there are a lot of critics about the Bible. 
I hope you understand that. I hope you don't go in naively into this world thinking, oh, everybody loves Jesus, you know. No, I want to tell you something. Whenever there's things, miracles in the Bible, all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, that can't be. There's no way that can be. And so the argument against the flood is this. It wasn't universal. It wasn't all over the world. It was just in a little local area. Well, let's just take that for just a moment. And these are not uh, new with me, but I, I, I took the last number of weeks here and I read through Henry Morris and John Wickham's book, their book called The Genesis Flood. And I'm going to just note a few arguments from them. So this is not new with me, but let me give you these. I don't have these on the screen, but let's think about this for just a moment. Look at Genesis 7, verse 19 and 20. Let me read these two verses. The Bible says in the waters, chapter 7, verse 19, the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth and all the high hills. That means all the mountains that were under the whole heaven were covered. Now, let me take those last couple of phrases. How many mountains do you think were covered? All of them in the whole world under the, all the heavens. He's saying all those high hills or the mountains were covered. Look at verse 20. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered. Now, it's interesting here. The word all is used to describe these high hills or mountains. But God also adds the words under the whole heaven. So everything under heaven, that means in this whole world here, all those mountains were covered. But let's consider something if we maybe... Maybe to those who don't believe the Bible. If only one mountain or a couple of mountains in a local region were covered, then I want to tell you something. The flood would have to be universal because water seeks a way to be level. Now think about this. What do you say in verse number 20? 15 cubits. People start mocking this whole idea. Oh, 15 cubits, that's all covered. What about those mountains that were higher? Well, let me just go ahead and pull this out here with regards to what he's giving about this measurement. This does not mean that the flood was only 15 cubits high or, tw- or that is 22 feet high. I believe it refers to the draw- draft of the ark. Because the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 6, verse 15, that the ark was 30 cubits in height. And therefore, when the waters became to come down, the the rains came down and, and the floods broke up from underneath here, the ark sank in the water at one half of its total height. And guess what? It allowed it to come over those mountains as that water rised. This is important as we consider verse number 20. Notice here this idea of the 15 cubits and the water prevailed, or verse number 19, I'm sorry. The water prevailed, verse 19, 15 cubits and verse 20, upward did the waters prevail. The mountains were covered by at least 15 feet, and if they had not been so, the ark would have not been able to float over them. So the depth of the flood is important, but let me give you a second argument about the ark or the flood being universal. How about the duration of the flood? Now, again, if you read through chapters 7 and 8, you're going to note some of the chronology that was given. There's a period of 40 days of the rain, 110 days of the waters continuing to rise. 
If you compare chapter 8, verse 5, and chapter 7, verse 11, then for the next 74 days, the waters began to decrease. On and on this thing goes. And for a total of 371 days from start to finish, a little over a year. And I'm just going to tell you something. Because of the duration of this particular flood, this cannot be just a simple local flooding. Number three argument for a universal flood, the need for an ark. Now, I love this argument here for just a moment. Do you remember when God sent an angel down and came to Abraham and Lot and basically said, uh, we need Lot to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah? Because what was God going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? God was going to destroy those two cities. And basically, Lot and his wife and He was to compel his two daughters and their husbands to basically leave and go to another area of safety. Why? Because in one local area, God was going to destroy it. But in another area, Lot and his family could be safe. Now, the reason I believe that the ark or the flood actually is universal and not just local is because God had Noah build an ark. Why would you take a hundred years to build an ark and to get into it when you could have traveled in those hundred years down a few hundred miles and gotten away from a local flood? Does it not make sense? I mean, think about that. But then number three, I want you to, or number four, I want you to notice another reason for the universal aspect of the flood is the total destruction of the human race. Please note the commentary in Genesis 7, verses 21 to 23. Let me read this. See if you can grab the, how extensive this is. And all flesh died. How much? Give me that three-letter word. All. All flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man All in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground. Notice this. Both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive. And they that were with him in the ark. The commentary in these three verses that I just read, to me, notes a widespread universal destruction. It's pretty amazing how the Lord Jesus Christ himself noted that total destruction in the book book of Luke, chapter number 17, verse number 27. Listen to this as Jesus talks about this. They did eat, that is, the people in Noah's day. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came, and listen to these words, and destroyed them all. You can look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, and note how Peter is very explicit that when the ark was made, that it was Noah and his family were the only ones saved. What happened? Total destruction. Not just one city, not just one country, not just one region, but all around the world. Now let's talk something else about the specifics here, and that is 
Is there evidence for something like this worldwide flood? Well, I would have to say yes, because first of all, I want you to notice here, if you take time to read these two chapters plus, you're going to notice that there's some very specific dates that God gives to us. God is a God of order. God is a God of detail. And as we read through the book of Genesis, it's amazing how God gives to us the years of some of these patriarchs, when they had children, what year it was that they died. You know what God's doing early on in the book of Genesis? He's letting us know there's some literal accuracy to all this. These people are real. These things are factual. And so what is it about the dates that are given? Well, look at Genesis 7, verse 11. Notice, in the 600th year of Noah's life. So at age 500, how would you like this? At age 500, you're building an ark. The biggest project of your life. Whether you got back pain, whether you got arthritis, whatever, whatever Noah was facing at age 500... He's building an ark. In the 600 year now, notice here how specific this is. In the second month, the 17th day of the month, what happened? That same day, all the fountains of the great deep broke up and the windows of heaven were open. Now, notice, if you will, chapter 8, verse number 13. It came to pass in the 600th and first year. Now, what did chapter 7 and 11 tell us? What year was it of Noah? Well, you forgot already, didn't you? It was year 600, all right? Chapter 8, verse number 13. It was his 601st year. But notice here how specific he is. Look at this. Chapter 8, verse 13. In the 601st year, the first month, first day of the month, what happened? The waters were dried up from the earth. Noah removes the covering of the ark. Look, behold, the face of the ground was dry. So to me, there's something very powerful. Is there evidence of this? Well, sure. If you believe the Bible, then I want to tell you something. God gives some very accurate, detailed information. Very important. Let me give you number two here in regards to this. How about the biblical testimony? The biblical testimony. Now, I've gone through this a couple of different times, but and I don't want to rehash it to a great extent, but there is a phrase that is used throughout the Scripture about this being the generation of something. This was a phrase to use of accounting of a record. So uh, Adam had recorded some things, and this was the generation here that he had gave, and this was the accounting of the history up to this point, and then some of the other patriarchs had recorded these things. And through this, you find that there is an accurate recording of these testimonies right in the book of Genesis. But then you go through the rest of the Bible. Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 to 39. Here's what Jesus said. As the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they're eating, drinking, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered in the ark. Jesus gave credibility to Noah and to the flood. 
On an earlier occasion, I mentioned already Luke chapter 17, verse 26, Jesus talked about this time. Luke chapter 3, when the genealogical record is given of Jesus, guess who's listed in there? Noah's listed. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, as we know, that great chapter, the hall of faith, who's listed in there? Noah. And guess what's listed about Noah? That when he was warned of God, of things that he had not seen as of yet, he was moved with fear, and he prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Then I mentioned 1 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter talks quite a bit about Noah. So there's great biblical evidence. How about this? Let's, let's think about this for just a moment as we consider this major point. Is there evidence for this? How about historical confirmation? All right, the Bible talks about it. God gives some dates here, but what about historical confirmation? Now, here's what's amazing to me. Even though there's been many groups and many societies over the centuries that have denied the idea of a universal flood, guess what we have found through various records of different cultures? There's been discussion of a flood. Whether there's been an acceptance of it or not, there's been these, and they call them, mythical stories of a flood, but yet there's still mention about them. In fact, there's a man by the name of Dr. Dwayne Gish in his popular book, Dinosaurs by Design. He says that there are more than 270 such stories which carry that theme about the flood. So, yeah, there's historical confirmation just in general history. But then geographical evidence. Now, I by no means am a scientist. One of the worst subjects I took in, in, in school was science. I did, I did poorly in science. But truthfully, it has always fascinated me to realize that the more archaeology uncovers, if you look at these things without a bias, you realize that geology, here's what it does. It constantly upholds the record of Scripture. Now, those that have looked at the Grand Canyon and have noticed that there have been fossils of sea creatures in, in, in the various walls. Now think about this. This happens to be more than a mile above sea level. How in the world did those fossils get there? Oh, I know. A flood. That's how it happened. A flood. You look through here, uh, as far as other uh, certain things, there's certain things about rapid erosion here. Again, looking at the Grand Canyon, there's two well-known layers that people have named as they've looked at the Grand Canyon. And what's amazing here is that between these two, though they want to say there's millions of years of erosion, it's really not the case. Everything has happened rapidly. But now let's get into something here and let's talk about not just the specifics of the flood, but let's talk about the seriousness of God's judgment. The seriousness of God's judgment. Look at chapter 7, verse number 1. I want you to notice this point. God's judgment will be based on how you are before Him. Look at what it says. The Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Do you realize God's judgment is not based on your actions 
in relation to other people. Now, that's the way we judge ourselves. We say, well, I may not be that great, but I'm better than, and we name somebody. Or we talk about a particular group of people that we uh, find uh, uh, a little safety in the fact that, uh, well, I'm, I'm not like them. But I want to tell you, when God began to come through in this time of judgment and he called Noah, he talked about Noah and what God noticed. First of all, God noticed here what he did. God noticed personally. Do you realize here today the eyes of the Lord run to and fro through the earth? Do you realize that God sees what you do maybe when nobody else sees? God knows what you write on that text message. God knows what you open up on your phone. God sees what's coming up on your computer when nobody else is around. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro. And God will see to it that things are dealt with. And therefore, God, who loves you and cares about you, is personally invested in watching what you do. And boy, that would be sure a help for each one of us if we went through and realized that the eyes of the Lord are seeing what I'm doing right now. The ears of the Lord are hearing what I'm saying right now. And the Lord certainly knows even what goes through our thoughts, though we may not express it to anybody else. He knows those things. So God takes these note, this, a note of these things personally, but our character is judged in relation to His standard. Now, praise the Lord that as a believer, I'm not going to stand as what is called the great white throne judgment. That is for unsaved people. Someday, every person that does not know Jesus Christ as Savior will stand at that supreme judgment place They'll stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords, and they will find that their name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. And the Bible says that based on the judgment of the Lord, they will be cast in the lake of fire forever and ever. That's a, that's, that's a great white throne judgment. But do you realize you and I, as believers, will not be judged for our sin. That was judged on Jesus on the cross of Calvary. But we will be judged on how we live for Him. You read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You look at some of the passages, Romans chapter 14, verse number 12. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. We're going to give an account of how we live. So when I look at Noah, and though Noah was saved here, but there was still something that God saw in Noah, took note personally. And Noah made sure that in this generation, though everybody else went against God, Noah decided he was going to live for God. Can I tell you today, I don't care what everybody else does. It doesn't matter if everybody's jumping off the bridge. I'm not jumping off the bridge. It doesn't matter if everybody's going this direction and they're following this. It doesn't matter whether they make it legal. It doesn't matter whether they say it's okay. It doesn't matter whether the running philosophy is that you go this direction. I want to tell you something. The best way to go is God's way and follow Him. Well, notice something else here about the seriousness of God's judgment. God's judgment is literal. I look at chapter 7, verse 4. God says, For yet seven days... And I'll cause it to rain upon the earth. Look at verse number 10. It came to pass after seven days 
that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. Can you imagine this? Hundred years, Noah's building the ark, and finally God says, All right, seven days, water's going to start pouring down. Earth's going to break up, floods are going to be taking place. So now I imagine Noah putting the finishing touches on the ark. Letting people know as they're passing by, trying to get leaflets out, trying to, trying to get on a street corner and telling people, seven days, six days. Hey folks, you got five days left. Four, three, two, one. Everybody's thinking to themselves, come on, Noah, you've been after this for a long time. This is not going to happen. In fact, Peter even put it this way. You know the day we're living in? People say to themselves, oh, come on. They've talked about Jesus coming for a long time. They're scoffing at the fact of Jesus coming. They don't think it's going to happen. They don't don't realize that that day is coming. And so what are people doing? Just like in the days of Noah, today people are drinking and eating and giving in marriage. They're just living life without ever recognizing anything about God and what He's going to do. But I'm going to tell you something. That judgment that God is bringing to this earth will literally take place. And you and I need to be warning people. Need to be telling people. But notice here. God's judgment will deal with sin. God's judgment will deal with sin. Now, I know chapter 8, verse 21. I'm not going to read this passage of Scripture, but it's pretty amazing here how Noah gets off the ark and he actually gives a, an offering unto the Lord. Now, I really believe, first and foremost, this was a thanksgiving offering to God. But notice here... That there were two animals, at least male and female, that had to be brought in. But of the clean animals, when you read through this passage, God brings, God asks him to bring seven of each. Now, why was that? Because some of the animals, as Noah got off, were used for the purpose of a sacrifice. And you know what the reminder was to Noah once again? And every time a sacrifice would be done with the children of Israel, death took place because of sin. Sin requires death. How are your sins paid for? Somebody had to die. If you're not saved tonight, then and if you don't accept Christ and you go off, slip off into eternity, you will die for your sins. But I'd rather have it on this side of eternity that I accept Jesus' death for my sins and I accept Him and therefore I can have eternal life. But you know what I'm reminded about and what I think Noah was reminded about? Imagine now Noah getting off the ark, giving this Thanksgiving offering and realizing the all of these people that died. People that over the course of 120 years, he remembered them walking by saying, Oh, Noah, you're crazy. Oh, come on, Noah. There's not going to be judgment. People he met, people he was neighbors with, people he worked with possibly, but yet none of them came in. And a reminder that God's judgment is going to deal with sin. But let me give you some spiritual significance, and I'll just roll through this very quickly. Spiritual significance Noah's name, the name Noah means rest. He's a type of Jesus Christ. 
You see, in Jesus Christ, what do we find? Because of the finished work of Jesus, we find our rest. And Noah, prophetically here, because he finished the ark, found rest in the ark and powerful. Noah's seen prophetically really as a Savior, if you will. But then I want you to notice something else. Look at chapter 6 and verse number 16. I love this. Here's some of the specifics that Noah's given here. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and a cubit thou shalt thou finish it above. The door, notice singular, the door of the ark. One door. All we read about is one door. What's the spiritual significance of that? There was only one way for Noah to enter into the ark with his family. And when Noah got in, God shut the door. But you know what's amazing to me? There's only one way to heaven. There was only one way for people in Noah's day to be saved. If they wanted to get in the ark, they had to go through that one door. Now, what happens in today's society? How many doors have religions made? How many doors have people created? I hear the statement all the time, Oh, come on, preacher, there's many ways to heaven. That's what the world says. But my Bible tells me in John chapter 10, verse 9, that Jesus is the door. My Bible tells me in John 14, 6, Jesus' own words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You go ahead and try to pay your way to heaven, it's a door that won't open. You go ahead and try to be a good enough person, that's a door that you don't have a key for. You go ahead and try to attend church, you try to live as a good life and be a good neighbor to other people, and you try opening any other door, but I want to tell you something, it does not lead to eternal life. Jesus is the door. You've got to go through Him. Let me give you something else. It's interesting, the ark was made primarily of wood. I read in the commentary here recently, this Really, this idea of wood speaks of the humanity of Jesus. What had to happen to the wood? The wood being cut from the tree, that wood literally had to die. Jesus who came to this world and took upon Himself human flesh, that body had to be given for us. But then I want you to notice the ark was covered with pitch. Chapter 6, verse 14, it says the ark was covered in and out with pitch. Now, this kind of this watery, gluey system that basically protected the ark that no water could get in. Very interesting that the word pitch is the same Hebrew word which is also translated atonement. Now, I I don't have time to go through it tonight, but I would encourage you to read passages like Romans 3.25, where the Bible talks about the death of Jesus, that He is the propitiation for our sins. That is, Jesus satisfied the very wrath of God. And how was that satisfaction made? It was by His blood that was shed. That blood that poured on Calvary. And this pitch... That covering, if you will, all over the ark was the means of salvation for Noah and all of those inside. But then I want you to notice, lastly, and I'm done, 
I love the verse of Scripture where it says, God shut the door. God shut the door. Now here's what I want to wrap up tonight. I want to say to you tonight that there is coming a day very soon when God is going to shut the door, if you will. Wrap it all up. You say, when is that day? I don't know. I'll tell you, the more I watch the news, the more I think to myself, wow, it's getting close. Getting very close. So in this time right now that we're still living in this period of grace, this time when God's offer of salvation is open, how you and I need to be like Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Working for God, a hammer in one hand, but then on the other side, we're warning people, judgment's coming. What's the whole thrust of the flood? It's a reminder of the fact that there is a judgment coming. And we have a job to warn people. I'd like you to do this for me. I Just before I have you close your eyes and we bow our heads and we pray for a moment, I want you to think with me for just a moment. Who do you know that needs to be warned? You say, oh, preacher, I, I, I've talked to them. I've given them tracts. I invited them to church. They just shut me down. My friend, I want to tell you something. As long as the door is open, you keep going after them. You keep talking to them. I am amazed at how many times that, uh, in fact, the, the, the young man that got saved last Sunday, Brother Billy. I'm telling you now, two to three years working, sharing. I'd go home sometimes after talking to Billy and I'd think, he just doesn't get it. Just doesn't have it. But you know, God kept opening the doors. And I'll tell you, when he was sitting right over here and I asked people to pray the sinner's prayer and I led people publicly. And when I asked, if you prayed that prayer, would you raise his hand? His hand shot up. And I'll tell you, there's something different about Billy now. It's beautiful. But whoever is in your path, neighbor, friend, family, I don't know who they are. Coworker. If they're without Jesus Christ, they need to be warned by you of the judgment to come. You say, is judgment coming? Absolutely. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, that it is appointed unto men once to die. And do you know the rest of this? After this, the judgment. It's coming. You and I who know this book may not know the time, but we know it's approaching. Your friend or co-worker or family member may just be going about life not even thinking anything. Oh yeah, stuff's going on in Israel. Oh yeah, stuff's going on in the world. Oh yeah, all this is happening, but they are just going on their own merry way. And all of a sudden, there's going to come a day, the door's shut. And there'll be no chance to receive Christ. Let's be faithful at sharing Him. Lord, I thank You for this opportunity to share the, 
these scriptures. Help us, Lord, to be people who are faithful to thee. In Jesus' name.